the difficulty with expository preaching, that is preaching through a book, is that sections of the text do not lend themselves to sermons. They just don't. That's why the class format's sort of better for expository. Uh, so I've just decided I'm sick of talking about this law and, law and, and why not go to the old law again, because we've been doing it po very poorly planned on my part, Sunday morning and Sunday night. Uh, so we're just going to do the rest of it, like a chapter and a half in one sermon, because I'm the preacher and I can do that. Uh, Galatians. Let's talk about Galatians. It's a very confrontational book. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've gone through. Uh, beginning with chapter 1 through what we've gone through so far, Paul's been sort of aggressive. He's been, uh, he's not been nice, we could put it that way. Uh, he says in Galatians 1.9, as I have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And, and one of the things we find as we go through this book is he very clearly has in mind some figure or person or persons, this group of people perhaps, that he is aware of in Galatians, in Galatia rather, in the region of Galatia, that are trying to convince the Christians to go away from Christ. They, they're just trying to do that. Or not, if not Christ, then at least from the new covenant to go back to the old covenant. And so he starts out the letter, let that guy be accursed. Whoever's teaching you a different gospel, curse that dude. He says in Galatians 2.11, he talks about his confrontation of Cephas. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Right, and that was when Peter came and he was eating with the Jews and or eating with the Gentiles, and then the Jews came and Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, and and Paul just says, "I got in his face," and I said, "You're you're being." I, I would have liked to have seen that confrontation. That would have been interesting, uh, confrontation between two apostles. He says in Galatians three one, "Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?" He is very confused and perplexed about why this is going on. Who is this person that is that is? that is tricking you away from the, the right stuff. This is probably the harshest, Galatians 5, 10 through 12. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, what's bear the penalty? Uh, I think he's referring to what he said to, to the Corinthians, right? About in 1 Corinthians 5, cast that person from among you. Uh, he even uses later on the same sort of uh, phrase, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 5, he said what? When you are assembled together in the name of the Lord and my spirit is with you, uh, deliver this one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, is what he tells the Corinthians. I think that's what he's referring to here, right? The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. But if I, brothers, still preach for circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that, face, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish that those who unsettle you, I don't know what version you have, this one's sort of a made it a little gentler. Uh, this is castrate themselves, is what he says. It says emasculate. The word, this word emasculate, literally means to cut off. Uh, very graphic imagery, really. And that's what he's saying. He's so upset at these people, whoever it is that's, that's disrupting what's going on in Galatia, whoever it is that's teaching these things about the law. And, and so Galatians is really quite a confrontational book. I am tired of these people who are teaching you the wrong stuff Put them from your midst. I wish they would just castrate themselves. He is upset at these people. Why? Why was he so antagonistic about it? 
it fundamentally comes down to he was worried about the Galatians, right? 4, 17 through 20, they make, they, these people, whoever they are, these, this mysterious group of people who is teaching false things, make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out, shut you out of the gospel, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He views them very much like he would view children, that he is trying to, uh, he is really trying to create a new sort of a person in the Galatian churches, somebody who has Christ in them as opposed to somebody in the world, right? I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. How is this happening? How has this happened? I taught you the gospel. I was with you. And he goes into a long detail about his, his willingness to work. And he was with them in a bodily ailment. He had some sort of illness that was he, when he was with the Galatians. And he was with them. And he even says, you would have cut your own eyes out for me. How has this happened that you have gone so far astray? Now, he uses a specific language to convey this concern. Very similar. I didn't plan it. It just sort of happened when we talked about this morning. Uh, Galatians 4, 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons of years. And this is his point. Why we've talked about all this antagonistic stuff. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. All that work that I did in Galatia, all that work that I did planting the seed and spreading the gospel and nurturing you as children and, and teaching you the ways of Christ and trying to get you to be the new creation, I am worried that all of that will have been worthless because I left and now you're going to do some other thing. Now you're all going back to the old stuff. What was the point of me even going and talking to you? He is concerned that his work will be, have become useless, right? He was worried that they were going to be taken captive into spiritual and intellectual slavery. I said all that. What were they in danger of being slaves to? He uses this slave language. Like, again, I didn't plan it. It just sort of happened. Uh, slavery. This is his primary analogy through the rest of our discussion tonight. This slave language. That they had been free, now they were wanting to be slaves again. Or rather, the people, whoever this shadowy cabal was, this group of people that was teaching them the wrong things, wanted them to be slaves again, instead of free. Slaves to what? Well, we see already Galatians 4, 8 through 11. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You were enslaved to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Now, I think here he's speaking to the Gentiles, right? Those who by nature are not gods would be who? Zeus, Ares, Artemis, these, these gods, right? We would use gods in air quotes there, right? Uh, they are not by nature gods. They're sort of gods with a capital G, these, these beings that people worship, right? The weak and elementary principles of the world, these sort of these rules that, that, that the Greek Greco-Roman religion had come up with, all these different sort of uh, principles, I like the word principles that he uses there, weak and worthless principles, elementary principles, that is physical in nature instead of spiritual in nature. You Gentiles, you guys who didn't follow the law at all, you guys used to be slaves to that. Now you kind of want to go back to that. And then, of course, the second part, you observe days and months and seasons and years. That could be directed at Jew or Gentile, right? 
you got all the different holidays in the Gentile calendar, the pagan holidays, but it's not like the Jews didn't have a bunch of holidays, and I say holiday, literally meaning holy day, right? You got the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths, and, and you've got all these different holy parts of the calendar, and what is he saying? You're going back to this stuff. It's worthless. Why are you going back to it? To be enslaved to these things that are, are worthless, that have no value. Just like we want to go back to the things that have no value. We said it in class this morning, right? What benefit did you get from the things that you are now ashamed of? Is what he said in Romans. We used to live whatever way that you lived. I don't know what it is that you did before you became a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian your whole life. I say your whole life from a very young age. But maybe you became a Christian later in life, whatever the case may be. And what? You want to get dragged into the world? You want to go deal with stuff that the world cares about and get caught up in the concerns of what, what the flesh needs to deal with and, and caught up in politics and all of this other stuff? You want to go back to that stuff? Why? It's pointless. It's vain. That's what he's worried about, right? Galatians 4, 21 through 26. He switches back over to the Jews, right? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, this is an interesting analogy. We're going to read half of it. He has more of it in the text we're not going to read. From Genesis 16, the story of Hagar and Sarah. Now, we know the story, right? God tells Abraham. Let's just recap the story really quickly. God tells Abraham, you're going to have a child. It's going to be amazing. You're going to have so many descendants, and you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That promise that we read a bunch. But, Genesis, or, but Abraham is old. Sarah's old. They're not quite sure how it's going to happen. Hasn't happened yet. Several events happen in their lives. Still no kid. Presumably they're having sex. And they get a little worried. I'm not sure that this is going to happen. So Sarah says to Abraham, hey, why don't you have a child with Hagar? Your, is it, I don't know if it's concubine or handmaiden. I can't remember off the top of my head. But this person that's in their house, a servant in the house, why don't you have a kid with Hagar? That'll be the kid, right? I can't do it. Obviously, I'm super old. So, Abraham, you have a kid with Hagar. And, of course, that child is eventually Ishmael, and, and they're cast out. But, of course, the angel comes and, and talks to them and says that he'll bless them too. Not in the same way as the child of promise. But So we have Hagar, who has a kid by Abraham. And then we have Sarah, who eventually does have a kid by Abraham. One child of the promise, Isaac. One child of the flesh, Ishmael. So that's the backdrop for what he says here, right? Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one a free woman. That's Hagar and Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. Now we think about two covenants, very clear what he's referring to there, right? We have the covenant with Israel and we have the covenant with Christ, the new covenant. One is from Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is significant. Why? That's where the law was given, right? So you think, oh, that's obviously, that's Isaac, right? Because that's where the Israelites came from, is from Isaac. But no, he doesn't say that. The one from Mount Sinai is Hagar, the child of the flesh, or the, the one who had the child of the flesh, the slave woman, the one who is not part of the promise, the one who had no part in what happened eventually in Mount Sinai, the woman who did not bear the son that would eventually lead to Christ, Mount Sinai, where the law was given. Mount Sinai, where essentially Israel became a nation. Mount Sinai is Hagar. 
that would have been sacrilege, heresy, to call Ishmael Mount Sinai, where this most monumental of events happened, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, bearing children for slavery. Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Now, when he says present there, he talks about Jerusalem as in their day, right? The center, again, of Israelite power, the center of Israelite religion, the center of everything that was centered on the law, everything that the Israelites cared about was in Jerusalem. And what does he say? Jerusalem, that's Hagar, this slave woman that had no part of the promise. But Jerusalem, that is, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. What is he saying here? You want to go back to the old law, you're leaving the promise. You're going back to slavery. The promise, the free promise, the promise that in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that was through Isaac, and it has no business with Mount Sinai. No business with the old law. No business with what Moses gave. No business with Jerusalem here. Don't go back to that stuff. Look, Paul, or look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, only faith working through love. Can he be any clearer than this? Every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. That means the things that he talked about, right? The feasts and the food laws and the sacrificing laws and the cleansing laws and the purifying laws and all the different laws about what to do with, with whatever, any sort of aspect of life that's covered under the old law, right? You are severed from Christ. Do you know anybody that... This would apply to today. I know some people in this room have people in their lives that want to go back to the old law. Or they're trying to create some blending of the two, maybe, is really what ends up happening, right? I know that there are people in this room who have people in their lives that are trying to create a weird amalgam of the old law and the new. What's the end result? Severed from Christ. That's not unclear, is it? Oh, oh, he needs to clarify, so let's see what he says next. You have fallen away from grace. Is that, is that clear enough? For through the Spirit, by faith, we await for the hope of righteousness. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. As I said, this is the last time we'll talk about the specifics of the law like this. But it is, I think, his final denunciation of it is powerful. You go back to the law, you lose Christ. You have to pick between them. You can't have it both ways. You can have Christ or you can have the law of Moses. Don't pick between them or don't try to have them both is really what he's saying here. You only get to have one. Now, this freedom from the law and the elementary principles of the world, again, the things that the Galatians or the Gentiles would have come out of, right? The, the things with Hermes and Zeus and Artemis and, and the pagan rituals and the pagan sacrifices and all the different stuff, that carries its own responsibility. He says this twice, 5, 6. 
In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I'm reminded, of course, and, and I'm sure many of you are, James 2. What does he say? You want to be justified by faith without works? Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Don't you see that Ebert, and he even uses the Abraham story, right? Even Abraham was justified by works when he, and he talks about the stuff that Abraham did. So we're reminded, of course, of James chapter 2 there. We're also reminded of our discussion this morning in Romans, when he says what? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Don't be dumb. Faith working through love. The freedom from the old life, the freedom from the old law, doesn't mean that I just suddenly get to do whatever I want, right? But that I'm working in love, faith working through love, that I am now participating in a new thing, that there is some stuff to do, obviously. This freedom is not freedom to do whatever I want. This freedom is freedom to love instead of fear. I'm reminded of 1 John 4, 16. We have, by this we have come to know and believe that the love of God no, I need to start that over. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And he does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those old things, the pagan worship, the law, based on fear. They were things based on, if you don't do all of these things in exactly the correct way, you're doomed. That was the essence of them, right? If you don't do exactly all of this stuff exactly the correct way, you're lost. We come to the new covenant, the new thing that God has given us, both in Romans and, and Galatians. Paul is stressing the righteousness that comes through faith, right? References back to Abraham, the righteousness that comes through faith. So what? Now that I am perfected, why fear? I have righteousness. So what am I doing? Now I'm not doing whatever I want. What am I doing? I am allowing my faith to work in my life. I'm doing righteous things because of the love I have in God. Because as John says, because I abide in God and he abides in me. I'm not worried about judgment. I'm not worried about the day of punishment. Isn't that what he says here? That there, we have confidence for the day of judgment. Because my righteousness is not dependent upon my ability to be perfect. Thank goodness for that. Amen. Maybe I'm the only one who feels that way. You all are so perfect, I guess. I'm thankful that my righteousness is not dependent on my perfection. Because of this. I don't have to be afraid. I'm working. My faith is working in love. I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. I'm endeavoring to, to be grateful and to serve him. And I'm, I'm striving to show the kind of love that Jesus wants, the kind of love that's commanded here, right? We love because he first loved us. And how did he 
of us, he sent his son. The whole business with the cross, the thing that got rid of the old stuff, the old law, the old things, the pagan worship, all of that superseded by Jesus, who is the ultimate expression of God's love. So I love him in return, and I do the best that I can. And thanks be to God that he forgives me, that I have the grace that comes through faith. For you are called to freedom, brothers, Galatians 5.13 only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law, what is he talking about in law? I think about this. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. Kind of could be any of them, because we think about the ways he's used law. Could be the law of Moses. I think that's the intent specifically, but could be the law of Christ, too. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's so powerful, isn't it? Note that it assumes you already love yourself. None of this, oh, you've got to learn how to love yourself nonsense. Treat people... He says it a different way, right? So that as you would wish others do to yourself, you do to others. Isn't that the way he says it somewhere else? I can't remember where that is, but you know what I'm talking about. That's the fulfillment of the whole law. So what does he say in Galatians 5, 6? Circumcision or uncircumcision, none of those count for anything, but only faith working through love. He says in John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4 rather, Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Through him we have, through this love, we have confidence in the day of judgment. What does he say here? Through love serve one another. Why? Because the whole law is fulfilled in this one thing. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What have I been freed to do? I've been freed from the fear-based system of the old thing. The fear-based system of the law. The fear-based system of the pagans. I've been freed from fear to operate through love. That's what I've been given freedom to do. To operate, to obey, to serve, to love, to, to worship, to help, to pray, to evangelize, all of these different elements of righteousness, to do those things motivated by my love for God instead of fear of condemnation. That is freedom. That is true freedom that I'm not worried about that other stuff. Who is doing the biting and devouring? I think, again, he's talking about this group, right? You, this group that wants to take them back to the old thing. They're biting and devouring. Watch out that you're not consumed by one another. The rest of the book, then, which we're not going to get to tonight, obviously, covers the life of freedom. What have we been freed to do? Well, we're going to see the spirit versus the flesh next week. Uh, Galatians 5 talks about the works of the flesh, the work, fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting he says works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit, even though they're parallel lists. And then the danger of division. Then what about when we inevitably fail? Did you sin this week? Raise your hand if you sinned this week. Gideon, you did not sin this week, buddy. You're like one of the very few in this room I can have total confidence about. You didn't sin. Anyway. When we inevitably fail, what do we do then? 
right? If we're thinking about through faith, serve, or through love, serve one another, only faith working through love. Well, that's Galatians 6, 1 through 5. How do we deal with that? How do we encourage one another to continue then? If this is the thing we're supposed to be doing, the new modus operandi, how do I help you do that? Well, that's Galatians 6, 6 through 10. And then finally, a, a final warning in Galatians 6. So, thus far, you can tell I've just sort of skipped a lot of the text. Thus far, I hope we have discovered things that could help us defend the covenant of Christ from those who want to return to the Old Testament. That is the primary thrust of the first five chapters of Galatians. Uh, five and a half, or four and a half. The first four and a half chapters of Galatians primarily are this idea, right? And I'm going to say this again. I know that people in this room are facing this difficulty. I know you are. And I think that this is more of a difficulty than you realize in the world. That this is a problem that people want to go back to the Old Testament. Old Testament. I also hope we've seen how serious Paul is, was slash is, about maintaining the purity of faith. So serious that he was willing to confront people, right? It is worth confronting those who would cause trouble in the church, who would cause trouble doctrinally, who would cause us to drift away from God. It is worth confronting those people. He was not shy about it, right? Now maybe... I don't know if, if Paul was ever too harsh. Probably castrating yourself is the harsh part. Uh, but he really cared, didn't he? He was preeminently concerned. I cannot let this go. You, some people in your group are trying to lead you away from Christ. I can't let that go. I can't let that be. I can't just watch as this happens because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or I don't want to offend somebody or, or I don't want to cause a rift, right? If somebody is causing spiritual damage to the church... We need to deal with it. It's not worth letting go of that, especially those. And this is the problem the Galatians had. Those who would lead immature Christians astray. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, you're probably somewhat immune to this. Because you've been doing the same stuff for 50 years, and you have this, this sort of the mental pathways are formed, and, and you have the habits that you have in your religion, and the faith, and the coming to worship, and all the different things that are involved. But it's those new Christians, right? People who have just come to Christ, who are in danger of this the most. We need to be very protective of them. Very, very shepherd. I can't think of the right word. Shepherding isn't a word. And that is a word, I guess, but that's not the right word. Very... I think about the, the, the herd animals when there's a predator. What do they do for the young? They all form a circle so that the predators can't get to the young. New Christians are so vulnerable, aren't they? And it breaks my heart when they are corrupted by those who should know better. People who should know better, who are leading people astray, who are at their most vulnerable, and we just let it happen. We don't fight it. We don't reach out. We look up and suddenly, oh, these people are gone. I wonder what happened to them. They got eaten by the lion. These are the things we have to watch out for. And it is serious enough that Paul thought important enough to use some of the strongest language he ever used. This stuff matters. When a person is set on the path to Christ, when a person has accepted the gospel, they have converted to the way that Jesus wants them to live, 
we have to watch out for each other that we're not dragged back to the old thing, dragged back into the world or dragged into some other false teaching. It is our responsibility to make sure that that doesn't happen either to ourselves or to those around us. We need to be watching out for each other. 